Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at everybody this is uh jacob daniel and you are watching the daniel three podcast uh thanks uh to those of you who are watching live and to those who are watching whether you're watching it afterwards or listening to it on the audio format um uh it's really cool that i get to talk to all of you and i really uh i super appreciate uh all of you that watch in the various ways that you do um I'll start out before we uh, bring our guest on tonight. I got some plugs and some updates and just things I want to put out there. Um, I know a lot of you have been um, following what's going on with my dad. Um, just wanted to give a quick update uh, with his status. He's stable right now. Um, you know, he seems to be going in a good direction. So, I mean, it's kind of like I'm nervous about getting too uh, optimistic too quickly, but he's come a long way. Uh, last week when he went into the hospital, which was last Thursday, his oxygen was like super low, like in the 60s, even when they gave him 100% oxygen. And now he's on like 30% oxygen or 40% oxygen through the ventilator. And his uh, his blood O2 is still um, in the high 90s. So it's really encouraging. They're able to have more of his lung function um, uh, be part of it. It's not like 100% the ventilator doing everything. Like they're starting to let the ventilator kind of work alongside his own, you know, uh, lung function. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's going well. I appreciate, uh, all of you who have, you know, reached out, been praying, checking in on me and, and my family, uh, during this time. Um, and those who, you know, I'm really like overwhelmed and, 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 
My family is incredibly blessed by those who have contributed to the GoFundMe I started because I know that my my dad and my stepmom and the whole family is going to have a little bit of a financial burden to bear. Um, you know, with my dad having to, he's going to be out for probably at least a month or two, if not longer. Um, and so it's just you know uh, overwhelming to see people in our communities. Uh, you know, even people that aren't always, you know, like we don't always get along, but they're still like you know kind of coming out checking how i'm doing uh su su praying supporting um it, it means a lot so i just wanted to quickly update everybody and uh uh communicate my my gratitude before i got started uh plugs um obviously the website daniel318.com uh and those that was uh, put up by my friends uh at sexton inventive um who they're coming back to pa soon and when they are here i'm going to have them on the podcast uh my, my friends uh kaylee and josh sexton so um i'm looking forward to that that'll be sometime in november um i got some uh cool podcasts coming up uh next week i rescheduled with um let's see i have to actually pull up my calendar here because i can't remember uh let's see oh yeah next week uh i have uh cj uh he's the guy who does the dangerous history podcast um so i'm really excited to have him on talks talk about some history probably talk a little bit civil war maybe some wildrow wilson um that kind of stuff uh i rescheduled with adam patrick that's the week after next that'll be on the 19th i believe um also next tuesday i have a couple i have two back-to-back -back podcasts um, so uh, one's with uh, Thomas uh, Queter, who's a libertarian um, and a friend of mine. Uh, he's running in the state of New York. And um, I'm going back on Blackbird on Wednesday, but that's not live. So you guys won't be able to watch it till he uh, till he releases it after that. Uh, that's with James Gentleman of the Blackbird podcast. So that's what's coming up and in the works. Um, tonight, I'm excited to talk to um, a... Three, t I think he might be the first three-time returning guest, um, uh, a friend of mine who has been on uh, twice now to talk about the various relationships between praxeology, uh, you know, libertarian philosophy, and and Christianity, and a little bit of Jordan Peterson mixed in. Tonight is gonna, you know, less. It, it'll be less of a, you know unintentional smuggling in of Jordan Peterson. We're going to get a lot more into it uh, kind of in the wake of the really hot, really popular conversation that happened between Bob Murphy and Jordan Peterson. I mean, at least really popular between, you know, us Austrian and Mises nerds. So uh, it is Joe Hartman and I'm going to bring him on right now. Joe, how you doing tonight? Hey, Jacob. Really good, man. Great. Great. Good to be here. That's an honor back. to be the you know third time. Yes. The first time was, was too much politics. So today we'll talk some, uh, more yeah. stuff. Yes. Yeah, that's more fun anyway. I mean, it, it, the more I get involved in the Libertarian Party, the more I'm just like, what happened to me? <laughs> These people have taken away my soul and my and my joy. But um, but yeah, you know, it's it's you know, politics isn't that much fun. It's kind of like it's the it's the thankless work that somebody has to do, but nobody wants to do. But it's it's not really fun to talk about. It's much more fun to talk about philosophy and, and um, religion and, and just all these different things that we talk about. Um, so 
Um, yeah, I mean, I feel like you've been on the show twice. So a lot of people who watch my show probably do know you a little bit. But I, I just figured since we're going live, maybe there's some new people. Maybe give just a little, like, I don't know, one, two minute introduction to yourself and your background and sort of like, you know, what what things you care about as far as like, you know, the the um, libertarianism is. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was a Ron Paul libertarian. Um from about 2007 really changed my outlook on the world uh i thought ron paul was a republican joe (laughs) (laughs) exactly (laughs) yeah and um you know obviously he used the platform of politics to deliver his philosophical message that impacted so many of us and i think um you know stuff that I've, i've you know just cared about over the years is is ending the drug war and ending wars um and then you know more and more i i feel like as a younger libertarian that it was so simple it was just you know everything that the government does is really bad. Um, so it makes, you know, kind of understand or, or like uh, forming a a view on uh, any policy, it, it adds some clarity to that. But after listening to more, um, you know, libertarian content and then reading Mises and Rothbard, I got so much more into the philosophy side of it and especially the concept of praxeology as just a way of describing the world and understanding how to uh think about economics through the lens of human action and through the, the praxeological framework of, of describing action. And, you know, in more recent years that really, uh, you know, became connected to Jordan Peterson and so much of his message uh, in a way that I, I'm just fascinated by. So, um, yeah. And, and the idea that Bob Murphy and Jordan Peterson were going to talk when we were saying before that, you know, it was exciting. We, we, you know, they, they have, publicized that the interview had happened but then it took a couple months before it came out so i was uh, and it was it was so cool because he first he first went on twitter and asked you like who should i talk to from the uh austrian school of economics yes. and everyone was like bob but it was like overall like bob murphy like make this conversation happen and it was so cool to to see that happen uh got somebody in the comments that says that they know you so uh, uh <laughs> hey, Ryan Ryan. Roberts. um <laughs> yes. so kind of cool um and then H. Reardon, uh, with an important caveat, a uh, correction. Yeah, he did run in the LP first before he ran Republican. So, you know, and Liberty Movement would not be as big as it is today without Ron Paul. So, yeah, that was obviously a um, a uh, that was me mocking certain um, libertarians, not libertarians, but libertarians who like to shit on uh, the great Ron Paul. So, um, but yeah, he's clearly not a i mean he even when he was a republican he was not really a republican i mean the republicans didn't really like him they didn't even like the i mean and the ron paul movement you know there's a reason why the mises caucus was born why a a lot of them are involved in the lp today because you know the ron paul movement uh was kind of you know spit out you know the the republican party chewed him up for a little bit and then just like nah don't, don't want this so um but yeah i mean ron paul was a a great introduction for a lot of people both like first and second hand into uh mises and rothbard hoppa hayek you know all all this stuff um you know like i I was not brought in by ron paul directly but i was brought in by like you know that those first generation ron paul people so when people ask who made me made me uh, a libertarian i i generally have started lately to just say Ron Paul, because like, it's simpler just to say like, listen, like this is like, he was the architect that started this thing. So there was a lot of different people who kind of like influenced me 
but it was all indirectly done by like Ron Paul. I mean, like Dave Smith, um, Michael Heiss, you know, you know, maybe Tom Woods would still be around, but like a lot of people that, that impacted me, I don't think would be here if it weren't for Ron Paul. So, um, but you know, Ron, uh, you know, talks a lot about, he, he puts the, like one of the great things about him was that he didn't really talk primarily just about politics. He did talk a lot about the, the philosophy of, of Liberty. And that's what made people, I think, really want to like tune in and, and check it out. And, um, you know, the and idea well, of, I mean, go ahead. Yeah. And, and I mean, from his time in Congress, building the reputation of being so consistent that he's just stood in such contrast to the other, you know, clowns on the stage. He just stuck out in a way that appealed to so many people that were looking, you know, at all the politicians and, you know, the way that he delivered his message in a totally unique way compared to everybody else on the stage. Like it wasn't like he was reciting talking points and whatnot. He had a, you know, a belief system that was coherent and consistent and, uh, you know, yeah, exactly. It was a gateway drug um, to, yeah, for, for so many of us. And so I think, like you were saying, the people that have been impacted and, and grown out of that movement. But, and, you know, to the mentioning of his 1988 run, he was much more fiery back then. There's some great clips. Yeah. Uh, and he was, you know, spitting the same message. And uh, so, yeah, he's been doing it for so long. And yeah, he has. But, you know, one person that I also have to give credit to, although he didn't directly bring me to libertarianism, but he did sort of like have a great impact on that journey that led me to libertarianism was Jordan Peterson. Um, because I, and we've talked about this before during the show, but like I originally came more from the left. I mean, back in 2014, I was a big lefty, you know, 2015 Bernie Sanders came on the scene. Like that was my guy. I was going to rallies with him and you know, going around, like handing out, you know, the, the, the door hangers and the yard signs. I mean, I was, uh, yeah. I mean, if I, if I, if I met, 2014 version of myself today i'd probably want to punch myself in the face <laughs> not aggression Jacob. yeah i know i know you know so, but it, it took it's punching myself though so it's not is it a violation yeah. it self-ownership right yeah. <laughs> uh, uh that's a that's a that's a fun philosophical little uh sure. little uh tangent but um but yeah jordan peterson um and a lot of those intellectual dark web guys they, they're the ones that at least got me to the point where i think they sort of if you want to look at like my brain as sort of like a field, Jordan Peterson was the one that sort of like his work prepared the field, you know, made you know, like, like dug up all the crap, the rocks and stuff, did all the tilling and, and, and prepared it for those seeds to be planted. Cause like Jordan Peterson didn't really go around preaching like libertarianism, but he preached a, a sort of, like a, the 12 rules to, to life is like this like weird book that's like this amalgamation of different things that almost like comes together to like give you this praxis by which to live your your life by and these different things that like they correlated a lot with my faith but they were also like helping me to realize a lot of the problems with the way i was conceiving the world and the problems that i was like because i was starting to feel like a zebra among horses on the left and then I felt kind of politically homeless because I had never had a lot of more like conservative or um, I don't want to say conservative, just like there, there's a lot of wisdom in religion and in Christianity and stuff that I was not given uh, when I was growing up in a way that made sense. I was given it given it was given to me more in just the traditional fundamentalist Christian like um, 
these are the things that happened. You just need to know them and believe them. And and it's like, you know, it was a very simplistic uh, retelling of events. Then you get the Jordan Peterson and like, you know, listening to his lectures on Genesis and like not, and like, I remember going into it going, why are people saying this is so cool? Like what's so exciting about Noah or Cain and Abel or, you know what I mean? And then like you, you go through his lectures in Genesis and it's just like, holy crap. Like it gives you a whole new way to look at, the Bible gives you a whole new way of like just looking at history. And that was a lot of like a lot of my problem with where I was coming from the left was I had, I I was taught like that, you know, very liberal um, liberal arts, like revisionist version of history. You know what I mean? Very much identity politics, very much, uh, you know, woke culture. And Jordan Peterson was sort of an antidote <laughs> to, you know what I mean? To, to that chaos, sure. you know what I mean? Unironically un- uh, using his, yeah. his tagline there. Um, that was my first run in with Jordan Peterson. I don't, I'm, I'm curious, you know, uh, you know, what your sort of like intro to him was and what uh, impact he's had on you. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess I, I, I'm sure I first encountered him with the whole bill C 16 thing. That's when he really got a lot more uh, notorious and, um, you know, just into the pop culture scene. That's not the right phrase, but you know what I mean? In, into a a larger platform. And um, yeah, so I mean, I've, I've consumed hours and hours of Jordan Peterson content and the way that like you were saying a new way of looking at the world. I think the way that, that I see it is that he, is engaged in the praxeology of individualizing the concept of human action and the study of human action, the way that he describes individual responsibility as just like the, the way it is like a lot of his stuff comes down to, you know, taking responsibility for self-ownership and what is, you know, and it's both from the sense of it makes sense to do it this way because that's the way it is, right? He's not just making an argument that is based on, you know, moral principles are appealing to someone who, you know, is, is worried about like the uh, religious aspect of it. A lot of it, a lot of the way that he frames his arguments is that it's in your self-interest to live with these responsibilities, to take on the burden that you can bear, to, to carry your cross. But in his, you know, he uses different language from that to talk about taking on the maximum burden, looking for ways to, uh, you know, support. And he has some, um, uh, you know, with, with the, the rules, one of my favorite concepts that he has with his rules is to uh, assume that the person you're talking to knows something that you can learn, right? That you can learn from anybody. And I think that that framing of human interaction and conversation, you know, leads you to have more value for others. And I guess to, you know, pivot a little bit to the Bob Murphy and Jordan Peterson conversation, there is a, a part of me that was a little bit disappointed in the fact that so much of it was like just really fundamental economic stuff because I was hoping they would talk about some other specific things and kind of get a little more technical with it, I guess. I don't really know what I was hoping for, but um, Bob Murphy didn't really go down the, the the sort of logical deductive process of you know expressing praxeology. Instead, they talked a lot about more basic economic premises and you know did the stuff about why Marxism is wrong. Um, but then I realized, you know, I wasn't the target audience for that. I wasn't the most important people for, you know, to to uh, hear the message from Bob Murphy about how the Austrian economists uh, describe the world and, and you know, the, the synergy there with Jordan Peterson's message. So I think it was still a very, it was a great conversation and it was very successful. Um, and yeah, so, I mean, I, I thought it was, it was great. And to see the, 
the idea that um you know jordan peterson's huge audience that a lot of those people had you know their interest sparked to go read mises and listen to more bob murphy stuff and um probably encounter tom woods along the way and whoever else you know so i think uh that's exciting stuff so oh yeah it is we got a h reardon in the in the in the comments um doing a uh, don't compare yourself to other people. Compare yourself to who you are yesterday. Red Skull. <laughs> yeah. It's one of my favorite exactly. Jordan Peterson yeah. memes ever with the, uh, that people just like took it and ran with it. And it's just like hail lobster. And it's, it, <laughs> it's like yeah. the Hydra logo, but, but, but changed to a lobster. And Jordan Peterson has like followed along suit with it too, which is really cool. Like, I just feel like yeah. Jordan Peterson would be like a really cool, like, like hip grandfather kind of like when you're not embarrassed to like, I don't know. <laughs> so, <laughs> there would never be any small talk. It would all be super intense. You know, I think that would be very intimidating after a while. You want more of a gentle grandfather, I would think. I, oh, <laughs> but no, I want... I mean, obviously he's, he's, you know, uh, um, yeah, just, just excellent at, uh, you know, dealing, yeah. well, I think he was a little bit annoyed and a little bit frustrated by that, that, uh, the red skull thing. Oh, he was definitely annoyed by it, but then I think he was amused by the way that uh, Twitter, his Twitter followers and supporters and stuff took it and like weaponized it back at them, kind of being like, okay, and and, and you know what I mean? And so there's something, something cool about that. Like it's a very actually Christian idea to like take what your enemy means for harm and to use it for your own good sort of thing. You know what I mean? It's like, it's a very... I think a very Christian idea, uh, something it probably could, we could probably find a way to fit that into Jordan Peterson's 12 rules. Um, another rule that really, uh, I mean, the, the part of the book, and I think this is like near the beginning of the book and this really fits into like praxeology and stuff. But when he goes on about the lobsters, obviously, and, and, and hierarchies and serotonin, and like, that's the part of the book that I feel like a lot of people don't get. And I think it's because they're pro- partially because like, if, if you're some, I hate to use the term, but like normie, or especially if you're a lefty and you're really economically illiterate, like, you know, the idea of hierarchies triggers some people or or the idea of uh, hierarchies being natural. I don't know. There's something like that. That was part because part of what I think the left, one of the general trends, I think, on the left is they tend to be anti-hierarchy or at least they're more critical of hierarchies than those on the right like i think the right think is more naturally themselves yeah i think they think yeah. of themselves as anti-hierarchy but a lot of times they get confused about the nature of the political system as an oppressive hierarchy right that that's that that transitory state idealized concept that you know we just need to make the state bigger for a little bit and then people you know will be freer but where jordan peterson makes draws such a, a perfect um like distinction that correlates exactly with uh, you know, the economic side of it is the, the concept of the competence hierarchy where, right. you know, competence is rewarded and, you know, success in the marketplace value in the marketplace is rewarded as well compared to oppressive hierarchies that, you know, keep people down and do not allow the dispossessed, like he talks about to get out of it. And that creates all the resentment and everything else. And that's what the state does as well. He just sees the state in more of the um, like platonic sense, I think, that you know, it's it's a it's a big part of the ethos, and so when the state, it, state like sort of follows the culture, where I think the Austrian sense, of course, is much different than that. That the politics, you know, infects everything. Um, so yeah, there's there, there, you know that that actually fits into a lot of what I've been talking about on my show lately. Like I just had uh, Greg Boss on a uh, Greg Baus, sorry, a few episodes ago, 
to talk about the um, the Dutch reform reformers uh, concept of uh, fear sovereignty, which was the and it's just like I, I feel this really strong need to start like reclaiming words that statists have taken from us, like and, and like this started like when Jeff Deist came out to um, Pittsburgh and I got to watch him give a speech. And a lot of what he talked about was was defending language, which that ties right into Jordan Peterson, to be honest, and kind of like his rise to fame is like you don't let people attack language, even if it's something trivial or, or, or that people think is trivial. And like I think some people didn't understand why Jordan Peterson took a strong stance about the pronoun thing. Like even some people who are more maybe were moderate and not really lefties were probably looking at him going, I don't know, man, like, yeah, maybe it's not great, the law, but like, is this really the hill you want to die on and jordan's like if you don't if you if you choose not to die on the small hills you will die on the bigger hills eventually you know what i mean it's like if you wait if you wait until it's too late you know what i mean when like they're actually like you know at your door saying you know bow to caesar or the gulag it's it's much it's too far too too gone for you to stand up exactly and so but but think about what that is right is that what jordan peterson is actually saying right what he's standing up for is the fact that words are violence when they're written down by the state, that they are a threat of violence, right? right? So in a sense, he's he's saying, you know, not generally words or violence would be something he would disagree with, but he realizes that laws are threats of violence. So I think it's a it's an interesting way of just kind of seeing the, the the paradigm there of what the state is. It's that monopoly of violence. Everything that it does relies on that threat. So you know, and Jordan Peterson realizes that it's just he you know frames that in a different way, but I think it kind of connects that concept of what words are violence. Well. <laughs> some are in the political sphere and that's why we have to stand up against those you know constraints on free speech so yeah and and then you know beyond just the uh the actual laws themselves the the attempt of like those who would weaponize the state or universities or other institutions to to warp language in a very authoritarian spirit and you know like and just like you know words like order words like authority or even like govern government or governance have been hijacked by the state and like you know sometimes even like you know i know like new libertarians and stuff they'll come out and they'll they'll start being like you know oh you know screw the governments we don't we don't believe in laws we don't believe in i'm like well i don't know if that's actually an accurate conception like i get what they're saying but it's like you know i think as libertarians you know especially like if if you're an anarcho-capitalist you're not really anti-law. You're not really anti-governance. What you're against is the monopol the monopolization of those things that's created through the initiation of force. But to just, if you look at like an actual depiction of what an anarcho-capitalist society would look like, it's not a lack of order. In fact, I think spont- the spontaneous order of the market is actually incredibly orderly and is very paramount and 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 um beneficial to creating social cooperation and peace. And this is this is something that Jeff Dice talked about in, in that speech I mentioned earlier. And he's like, the, the, the problem is people have hijacked these words to make them associated with the state, to make them associated with uh, centralization. The idea that order comes from initiating uh, an, a monopoly through force to control everything. But the problem is like that's, it's it's like it's like a it's a analysis failure probably at the level of of time preference sort of because it's like 
they're they're looking at order and and things only through the lens of like the immediate consequences of like you know if if we don't have a firm grasp on things and control them that's disorder when really i think it's more like the opposite where it's like the more you try to use force to control the things around you the more that especially if you're trying to like like restrain things that are part of the natural order the more you will get a backlash and a consequential disorder and chaos from that and so it, it's funny and i think this ties into jordan like what jordan peterson was trying to do and like what his cultural moment was about was kind of saying listen no like rule like uh you need rules obviously and 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 he was like here are the rules that are antidotes to chaos but none of his rules were like you know like like no none of the 12 rules he's written in the first book or the second book at, at any point or ever like oh well to stop chaos what you need to do is create this giant you know uh, mafia of people to go around and hold everybody at gunpoint to make them do the right thing <laughs> yeah well one is he he recently tweeted I don't, I don't remember what exactly it was in response to uh but he he it was something along the lines of religion requires you to do something and ideology requires other people to do something hmm. i thought that was a great way to frame it and it definitely fits with the idea that i, I think of praxeology as my religion in the right. sense of you know describing in in the misesian sense describing uh the nature of uh you know economic exchange catalactics and then internalizing that in a way to you know understand how to act as an individual human in the same framework of what we are as humans what action is as action in and of itself and you know understanding on both sides of it it's, it's the same it's just a way of describing you know the world and how to pursue your goals and how to think about what other people are doing and how to offer value and how to you know you know find the meaning and pursuit of self-interest is a constant challenge right it's not something where it's obvious what our self-interest is and and that's where you know one of the things to talk about some other people in the jordan peterson world is uh he had maybe a couple conversations but at least one long conversation with a guy named john verveke who's a professor of psychology and stuff and they talk and he has a youtube series that's uh you know fairly big um about the it's called uh, uh, awakening from the meaning crisis. And, you know, that word meaning thinking about value and in the subjective value sense, um, you know, those conversations were, were excellent. And uh, I think, you know, so much of that fed right into the same, you know, concept of by being able to describe the utility of the resources available to us and, and being able to kind of understand how to engage with others in the social sphere it correlates exactly to, you know, how to be successful in the economic sense that we think of as markets. Um, it's the same way to sort of govern yourself and your own interactions with, uh, you know, your family and your future self in the, in the time preference sense of it, you know, having the higher value for your future self. Um, and so a lot of his content was, was really interesting as well. And so um, the, you know, one other Jordan Peterson episode that was very much connected to Austrian economic stuff was the Bitcoin episode that was had, uh, you know, four kind of experts in the Bitcoin field. And the one that stuck out to me was a guy named Robert Breedlove, who has a podcast called What is Money? And it's really interesting stuff. He's, uh, you know, Bitcoin uh, maximalist. And um, he has been talking to John Verveke from the 
you know, that Jordan Peterson had talked to. And the way that Robert Relevant, and this is something that Saifedean Amus also talks about, but the connection with how fiat currency destroys the morality of civilization. And the way that they form the argument is all based on praxeology and the nature of economic incentives and time preference. And so there's this like beautiful synergy between, you know, the sort of moral philosophy and the pursuit of moral philosophy that these psychology professors are engaged in. And it connects exactly with, you know, the, the moral arguments that the Austrian, econo- uh, the Austrian economists make for, you know, how our society should be structured and how we should exchange and get rid of the political system that is oppressing everybody. And so it's incredible. That, and the way I look at all of it is that, like, these are just people that are engaged in praxeology as you know they're pursuing their own interests as their highest purpose their highest use of their time is to have these conversations and to put out the content to lots of people like me to listen to and you know it's it's an incredible uh you know see and i see jordan peterson at the center of a lot of it i think you know without him a lot of these conversations and, and safedine just recorded an interview and that will come out in a couple months or i guess in in one month uh, in november so i'm looking forward to that one as well and i think that one will probably be more technical austrian economic stuff so I think it should be another, you know, advance towards, you know, more popularity for Austrian economics. Oh yeah, for sure. And you know what I was, uh, for what I forgot to connect to earlier, like, you know, when Jordan Peterson starts his book out talking about, uh, hierarchies, you know, that's something he talked about a lot. I remember one of the, uh, videos I watched, like one of the more popular ones where he's being interviewed by college students and they, like one of them got up and really challenged him on his, uh, defense of hierarchies and he was just peterson said something that was like looking back was basically him summing up praxeology almost but without like using our terms where he was like listen you got up here and like you had a choice to come up here and ask me a question or not ask me a question and he was like yeah he's like that's a hierarchy and he was just like and then like, peterson kept giving more and more examples it's just like every time you're basically set with a decision in life Anytime there is something in life that has value to somebody, a hierarchy is automatically there and it's just inevitable. And like Jordan Peterson in his book goes into like, it's so inevitable. It's part of our biology, <laughs> you know, but by his estimation. Um, and, and that's what praxeology is, is basically like it, um, the idea that like what human action is, is basically the decision, that, you know, like the observation that people act based upon, you know, looking at where they're at now and wanting to accomplish a particular goal and thinking like, oh, if I, if I do this, this will be better for me and my self-interest. This will, you know, get me to where I want to go. Well, only way they can do that is through like basically uh, in their own heads going through some kind of subjective value hierarchy to evaluate their different, um, their different choices doesn't mean their choices are always right but that's what they're that's what they're doing in their own subjective exactly it's allocating those resources towards the highest goal right towards the most meaningful goal and towards you know the the pursuit of the best way to alleviate the uneasiness in that you know misesian word so i think that that you know goal is is so much of what jordan peterson you know is about is is don't make your life harder than it has to be sort of thing right like don't you know think about your future self and wh- the one where it's uh, uh how is it the be a friend or no care, care for yourself like you're yeah treat yourself that, like you're somebody that you're, you're yes. responsible for for, for yes exactly yeah. 
yes <laughs> yeah that's yeah that's very much in line with uh uh, you know, I, uh, it's, it's kind of like, like, look at yourself, um, like treat yourself like a, like a, almost in an economic sense and, and, and like, look at yourself as somebody that you should be applying like economics and a proper time preference to. Cause like, and like, that goes hand in hand with another rule of his, which is like, pursue what is meaningful, not what is expedient, which yes. like plays right exactly. into like, you know, the Austrian view of time preference and everything. Yeah. Um, so it, it's, it's all very much you know it, it very much like it, it's like jordan peterson's uh like you know philosophy or like the 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 praxis he puts out there is like this weird mirrored image of 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 like human action basically and you know i i did wish that uh murphy kind of went into that a bit more like they kind of touched on it but i was like yeah. I, like i really want him to be like Here's where here's what you say, and here's how I would here's how Mises said it, and it's like the same thing, but two different like me like Mises explained these things from more of a like observational uh, economic perspective, and Jordan Peterson kind of does the same thing, but from his more like you know psychological uh, perspective, but it's really the same thing. Yeah, I mean it's it's the that's that's my contention. It's exactly yeah. the same thing. That's why I call it praxeology. Uh, but I th I think, um, you know, in terms of the con conversation with Safedine that's coming up, well, I already recorded, but will be released, is that Safedine is is very you know focused on the destruction of the morale, the moral of society, like the moral fabric of society by the use of fiat money. And Jordan Peterson, in that Bitcoin episode, there are a few moments where it was like, you know, all these people are saying things. And then he would have one of his little moments where he says something so perfectly in like a sentence where he sums it up in a way that his unique perspective, he puts a spin on it. And it was he had a couple of those moments in the Bitcoin episode that was really, really good in describing like the goal of, of how big of a solution Bitcoin can be compared to the destructive nature of, of you know, the fiat monetary policy. So I think... Um, but I guess just to, to try to explain the argument that I think is so incredible that uh, that Saifedean makes and that Robert Rila makes in the context of like how destructive fiat currency is, is that what they say is and what I believe, what I think makes a lot of sense in, in the framework of praxeology is that because of the inflation and in the same exact concept of the Austrian business cycle, right, where easy money leads to malinvestment leads to future bust and correction. So as long, the longer they paper over the you know losses and do not allow for those corrections to have resources reallocated to their highest purpose rather than their political, uh, the, you know, talk about expedience, right. Um, for political purposes that I think that, um, the idea that money is not sound, that the money is, you know, losing its value so quickly, changes the way that people value their time because they know that inflation is stealing their time it heightens their time preference and it makes people less uh, you know focused on the long-term goals focused on growing wealth and capital and instead you know it, it increases the um just like the the it tilts towards consumerism and you know more short-sighted expenditures rather than longer-term investments because of what the government does to money and so I think like, like that is such a powerful argument. I think it, it also, you know, you, you can apply it to so many other government policies, but the macro sense of how much, you know, everything is connected to money and prices. And so when the government changes the price of money, 
it impacts the way that we value everything. And that insidious nature of it, it, it makes it so much bigger of an impact than, than people are, are thinking about right now. And in that series where Robert Relove is talking to John Bervakey, they go through a lot of the meaning stuff. And when Robert Relove makes it, this argument, he makes it much better than I did there. And it's a much longer conversation. But it, uh, the guy, John Bervakey, who's like you know, a psychology professor who put out a big video about exploring the meaning, he had never really encountered that idea and he was just so struck by it and so like you know intrigued by the concept he was you know it, it just made so much sense to to connect that um and i think it's it's one of those arguments as well that it so squarely puts the blame on the political bureaucracy right like it's not like that's that's not in anyone else's hands right that is that is a policy that is only government because a lot of times there's that synergy where um, you know, there's the nature of corporate power and government, and sometimes it gets confusing, but, um, in terms of like who to blame, but in this case, it's so obvious that this is directly the system that is controlling the money and their ability to control money allows them to violate property rights without the ability to control the money. They can't violate property rights. And that's why Bitcoin is a solution, um, to so much. Bitcoin is literally the solution to the moral fabric of society. You know, according to these arguments and um, they're so compelling and it's it's just it, and it all fits both with Jordan Peterson, with Mises, Mises and economics and, you know, with with Christian morality and, and with so much of the Christian tradition as well. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I agree. And um, yeah, there's, there's something there like it reminds me of the whole like render unto Caesar passage, too when we're talking about like fiat currency and stuff. And I'm just like, there's so many layers to the response that Jesus gave to the, to the Pharisees that day. But like, and I've talked about many of them, but one of the angles I don't always talk about, but I, I will now, cause it kind of relates to crypto is that like, like part of the criticism there is like, he goes, what face, like what depiction is on this coin. And he's kind of like, in a way, like criticizing, um, I think the idea that like the currency is given to us by this centralized authority. You know what I mean? Now, at least back then it had some kind of like, it wasn't really fiat in the sense that like it was, you know, at least still had like the coin had some kind of like value or something, but it was still like something that was decreed by the government. And it wasn't like a free, a, a true free market currency. Um, you know what I mean? Like you, you had to use, use, use those coins. Um, sure. And, and there, there's well, something. And one thing, you know, post Jesus year, years later, one of the, the, you know, attributes of the downfall of the Roman empire. And I, don't remember exactly where I've heard these arguments, but it that the you know the empire was uh, essentially you know changing the mixture of their coins, and right. they were essentially doing easy money policy through you know metallurgy or whatever. <laughs> and right, it was, yeah. it was the same like that that was a big that was a part of the reason why the the good faith and trade was kind of lost in whatever you know that was going on, and, and you know as as a part of the cause of the downfall of the empire as well, just like our empire. Yeah. And, there, and there's something there, like, you know, if we're talking about, like, do what is meaningful and not what is expedient, and we're criticizing fiat currency, like, the, the other passage that comes to mind is when Jesus talks about, uh, don't store up your treasure on earth, but store up instead treasures in heaven, which is, I, I you know what I mean? It's like, do, do what is do what is meaningful, not just in, like, like, you know, we talk about heaven or eternity, that is like, almost a like a metaphorical or like allegorical um allusion to to again like having the the highest of 
like because like eternity is like essentially the highest of all possible time preferences right like um or sorry the lowest <laughs> going back going backwards um I, I sometimes mix it up in my head but no it's the lowest of time preferences when we're talking about like um the the idea that you know like you're putting off your time preference is so low that you're putting off rewards for some like untangible reward that you'll get at, like after you die or something that that creates value to you that isn't just like material in a sense and and it's sure. like and but like you know this is what austrians talk about which is like you know all all value is intrinsically subjective like there is no like you know one of one of the people i got into early in libertarianism was peter schiff and you know great guy great you know uh, as far as like libertarian economics and stuff like that but i really hate how much he talks about like he criticizes bitcoin talks about gold because it has intrinsic value and i'm just like mm. no <laughs> like no it doesn't like yeah. nothing has intrinsic value at least not like in the austrian economic sense like as a christian i think humans have intrinsic value but that's more of a metaphysical thing not well, really a i think in economic in economics in, in the in the sense of practicality humans have you know in the division of labor it, it, there is a more of a in, in a freer market there's more value for your neighbors in a political system your neighbors are you know mooching from you and taking from your share of the pie well, I yeah. mean, it's that's what the, the, that paradigm pits people against each other or puts people you know uh you know creates opportunities well, if, for them to collaborate yeah sure well if everyone is if everyone is a self-owner then if you know what i mean like they, they have that inherent value as being like their own private property, I guess you could say too, is another way to look at it. But, you know, n none of these currencies, these what are they, gold, silver, paper currencies of any type, like they don't have intrinsic value. They only have value in terms of like what they can do for people. You know what I mean? Like no one uses the US dollar because it has intrinsic value. They use it because like it, it, there's some kind of value to them uh, using it. But obviously that value is sort of like hyper, like, like artificially created through the coercive uh, interference of the state, which is part of the problem that you're highlighting. Sure. Yeah. Well, I think that there's an interesting uh, discussion or around the difference between um, like the, there is objective truth. And I think that there's, there's a way to define, uh, you know, a sense of, valuing objective truth in a way that becomes a way to apply objective values to your subjective value hierarchy in a sense right like your subjective value hierarchy is informed by your perception of the world and of the resources available to you and the you know potential future selves and potential states of uneasiness that are capable of being solved so like there's that nature of imagination to it uh but it's also always boils down to, um, you know, the individual deciding how to act in each moment, right? Like, like what that action looks like is the expression of those values and of what, you know, what, what has the highest meaning, um, whether or not it's a very short-sighted and simple goal, or it's, you know, much more, uh, you know, lower time preference. Um, and I think, in the concept like with Jesus, I think Jesus is an always an interesting because one of the things that I, I the way I like to think of it is is that everything is always in pursuit of self-interest. The question is we you know don't always define that self-interest in a way that our future selves would consider in our self-interest, 
you know, looking back, right? <laughs> Regrets. And, but I think, you know, in the concept of Jesus, what Jesus did and dying on the cross and sacrificing and all that stuff is in pursuit of his self-interest, that his values were in line with his actions. He didn't, no one could have forced him to do it in that way. He chose to, you know, go down the path and he, you know, whatever. So it, it was all in the, still fits in the framework of his subjective values, you know, were to suffer in ways that, you know, uh, everybody else wouldn't. Yeah. And that's so true. Cause you said that on the first podcast we did. And the first time I, the first time I had to chew on that, I didn't quite like, I didn't quite like it. I was like, uh, I don't know what to think about that. But the more I've thought about it, like it's sort of like inherently true because otherwise you would have to say like, what's, what's, what's the alternative? Jesus. Exactly. Was there putting can't himself be an alternative. Up on the- yeah. Right, like Jesus was putting himself on the cross, and it was against his own self-interest, which means it was against his will. Well, I think well, no. If it, if it, if it was down, according yeah. to his will, then it's sort of like definitionally has to be part of his self-interest, right? Well, exactly. Like, and I just... think, yeah. Well, the the axiom being, you know, humans act according to their purpose. As another way of saying that is that you know all action is in pursuit of self-interest. So I think that just descriptively, like you said there just as a way of describing it it must be true it's a non-falsifiable thing because if it wasn't in his self-interest if someone doesn't convince themselves to do something even if they're under you know great states of coercion and and under threats of violence um there's still always a choice there there are you know there's always that that framework of like the actor has the last you know ability to and you know jesus in the same way as anybody else doing something you know much less important so right. it, well, just, he told yeah. he told Peter in the garden because I remember Peter was trying to stop him from being arrested, cut yeah. off the ear of the of the uh, the magistrate or something, uh, which then Jesus like you know just casually picks up, puts it back on the guy, and heals him, and they still arrest him. Which is like I just love that little part of the story. He's just like <laughs> ah, my ear was cut off. Like yeah, here you go. Okay, you can arrest me now. <laughs> but but um, Peter, uh, you know, is doing that, and Jesus says, "Stop." He says, "Like will I not take the cup the Father has given me?" And do you not think that if I wanted, if I didn't want this to happen, that I couldn't just call down legions of angels to protect me, that I really need you and your little sword to like, you know, you cutting people's ears off? Like, no, if this wasn't going the way I wanted it to go, I would stop it where I would at least try to, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? Like yeah. he, he would do something, but he was going with it because it was his will and it was within his self-interest. It's just, it's like argumentation ethics. It's completely, mm, you yes. know, it, it, it's irrefutable. And the, the, the act of trying well, to refute yes. it is, 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 uh, is futile. <laughs> There's a section in, in human action where Mises, it's like a kind of a humorous little part where he's like, you know, if someone were to prove that they were not doing something in their interest to show that praxeology is not true, then they would be just applying a poor use of means for that purpose because they would still be having the purpose of doing what they're saying, uh, you know, to prove the praxeology is wrong, it, it, but they just would not accomplish their goal. Anyway, it was like a you know little cheeky thing. And uh, right. so I think that the, the, the descriptive nature of it is so much fun, right? Because you can just describe anything and, and just wonder what people's, you know, uh, subjective values are that motivate them to do such strange things. Right. And or, 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 you know, or like or you can wonder about all the different you know ways that people can you know formulate their own values. And that's what makes people so interesting. And in that concept of you can always learn from anyone or, you know, assume that the person you're talking to has something you can learn from goes right to that because the, the amazingly infinite ways of, you know, valuing potential, uh, you know, future states of uneasiness compared to other you know, opportunities to change those uh, idealized or imagined states. 
um, you know, through action, it, it, it allows you to like believe in other people as well, right? Like no matter what past actions are, there's always that opportunity for the next action to be radically different. And so, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just a fun way of, of viewing humanity. It's such an optimistic way, I think. Um, and it's so beautiful in the sense of the economics and the free market stuff that it fits so well with morality as well as, um, you know, just the economic arguments of efficiency and, um, you know, so I think that that challenge of the pursuit of self-interest in the, in the praxeology sense, it's like the, the religious pursuit of it, right. Is to align praxis with logos to align your action with the highest purpose. And that is the goal of religion, right? That, that's at least one potential use of religion in society. That's you know, the sort of evolutionary root of religion is that we have to figure out what our purposes are. So we collaborate with others and we form these social institutions called religions. And, uh, you know, in the Christian sense, th there's a lot of different versions of that. Uh, and they have different, you know, levels of, of providing purpose to people. Um, but there's something that we... You know, the fact that we need to have a purpose to act is, you know, a part of that description. It's axiomatic that we have to have purposes to act. We can't act without some purpose. It'd be impossible because action is purposeful. So, yeah, all of that, it's a, it, it, get, it gets into these circular arguments. But the, the way I look at it is it's a circle that actually closes, right? Circular arguments that just go in circles but don't actually, like, connect are useless. But in this, it's a non-falsifiable thing, right? Like, there's no way to falsify it. You was saying about that Mises. I mean, the only way you could falsify it is like with silly arguments, like this is all simulation or like, well, but complete... that doesn't even do anything. That doesn't break it either. You know, and one of the things I, I also like, I think praxeology hypothetically could be the religion of artificial intelligence as well, where artificial intelligence looks at humans and realizes that our purpose is, you know, that, that we are pursuing our self-interest and artificial intelligence. Notices I guess that what they I are not say... constrained in that way. Yeah. I guess what I should say is like, if you're an artificial program that doesn't actually have consciousness or sentient, you don't actually have preferences. You just have predetermined programmed uh, code that you're acting out. Kind of like, kind of like, you action, know, though. yeah, that's not action. Yeah. Right? So like, you'd have, to, of, yeah. you'd have to say that everything we're seeing is not action and not real, but it's like, okay, well, if it's not action and not real, then like, okay, then we're just back into like nihilism and, uh, solipsism and that's stupid so but like... i think yeah and i mean one of the ways that i i view it is i think that there's you can apply it like with some nihilistic views or whatever else like there's always a way to frame any of that to understand it in the lens of praxeology right like there's always a, a, a multiple ways to kind of imagine how someone has a certain set of opinions and uh you know subjective values that they're expressing and you know, there's a lot of different ways that those could be that you can imagine how those are in pursuit of their self-interest in the way that they're seeing things. I don't think like even the simulation idea, right? In in the simulation that we're in, we're still making choices and acting. We're still in that moment. We're wondering about being in a simulation. And that in and of itself is action, right? Well, Thought also is, in the Mises is action. Yeah. Whoever is making the simulation probably has some kind of purpose for making it. You know what I mean? So it's kind of like you've you've it's sure. sort of like you've but moved the yeah. yeah. But yeah, it's it's it, that was just it was a minor point. It's just like you, you have to come up with these really, I think, silly like like philosophical uh like try to try like cop outs to try to get out of it that are just like and to me like things like nihilism or something like that are sort of like self defeating premises because like I I think like it's sort of like how Jordan Peterson I know he triggers some people with this how he says there's no real atheists 
because by their actions, they're actually not atheists. I kind of think the same thing applies to like nihilism. Like there are no true nihilists unless they like literally like if you lay in bed until you die, like you just like I'm a nihilist. And then you literally just from that moment on do nothing but wither away. That might be the only way to consistently be a nihilist. Sure. Otherwise, well, if you get up and do the, something, then yeah. you're, you're kind of disproving nihilism by the fact that you got up and did something. Yeah. And there's a section, I don't remember if it's in Human Action or in a different Mises book, but where he talks about, I think it is Human Action, where uh, they talk about suicide as though, you know, humans are the only, uh, you know, creatures that commit suicide. And so mm-hmm. there's a sense where because we can abstract and understand the world without us in it, right, that, that we have that ability to kill ourselves. And that's unique to any other animals that do not have that same level of understanding of time constraints and and sort of imagining the world without themselves in it, right? They're just perceiving the world. So anyway, but the concept that the fact that we can commit suicide makes it where continuing to live is an action in and of itself that expresses the value of being over not being, right? Anytime that we're not committing suicide is a moment where we're acknowledging that life is better than death, right? So like in the framework of subjective thought, that's how deep it is built into our being. Like it's at every single level. From the stuff that we, you know, it's a little darker to think about, but it's it's true in the nature of like how much we're deciding in every moment, right? It's kind of a profound concept to think about how much every little action, every you know little thing that we do on a day to day basis requires us to have a set of values. We can't exist without it, whether it's whether it's well thought out or it's you know just as kind of happenstance, not you know uh, as as esoterically discussed like this but yeah right uh-huh. well, one of the things i wanted to get into as well because this is this pertains to like jordan peterson and like a lot of the uh you know he's made a lot of critiques of postmodernism, but then sometimes when he's in discussions with people like sam harris or others then he'll go like ah well now i kind of sound like a postmodernist," and it kind of always reminds me of that one rule he has yeah. where it's like treat somebody like they have something you can learn from and I almost feel like Jordan Peterson, if you if you take because like I, I used to kind of be in that camp where I was really anti postmodernism and I still have my issues with the way a lot of people use it. But I've come to look at postmodernism as more of a mixed bag, but not completely irredeemable, because I think if you take postmodernism as a tool and you kind of combine it with a praxeological or Jordan Peterson outlook, um, it actually has some some utility to it. Because there's, there's parts that, like people like Thaddeus Russell have done a good job yeah. at trying to like make that connect that bridge between Definitely. postmodern philosophy and libertarian philosophy. Um, and, you know, one of the things that Jordan Peterson talks about when he talks about postmodernism is like, like there are there are axioms to it that are true. You know what I mean? Like uh, there's a infinite or near infinite different interpretations to literature. And that's also to any sort of like any really landscape of potential or actual things in reality, there's a near infinite, uh, near infinite amount of ways to interpret those things. And that's even true of like hierarchies or like subjective value hierarchies where you're like, gosh, like there's so many different ways I could act in the world. And it is sort of subjective, like which way you should go. But then where this kind of meets, I think human action and like the, the economic side of it is like, what you find, this is what Jordan Peterson has said in his lectures and, and debates, is that what you find is that while there's an infinite set of possibilities, just like in general, there is a much smaller 
finite set of possibilities that you can do that will actually work. And, and what it what it kind of comes down to is, uh, the, like because hierarchies are 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 natural and inevitable. If you have a goal, the minute you establish a goal, there are objective, in a sense, good and bad and like better and worse ways to get to the place where you've accomplished your goal or you're at least moving towards it, right? So like even though there's like in a sense like if you don't have a goal, there are sort of like these infinite set of ways to interpret things or or look at different variables. But the minute you go, well my goal is to get here, now you've sort of narrowed the playing field. Like an analogy I, I've used a couple times is like if I'm in Pennsylvania, like where I live, and I want to get to Las Vegas. Now, like if I, if I well, actually, no, let me back up. If I'm in Pennsylvania and I get in my car, there's a near infinite amount of ways I can drive. Like I can drive in any, mis- you know, there's, there's so many roads, ways I can travel. I can backtrack. I can go through one state and another, like, you know, the near infinite combination of possibilities of, of turns and different roads I can take. But the minute I say, I want to get to Las Vegas. Now I've narrowed, uh, the equation down to more a, a more finite equation of different paths that are going to be through that lens of like the goal of getting to Las Vegas are better or worse for accomplishing my goal. Like if I start off in Pennsylvania and I decide to get on I-83 and drive north, that is not a, you know, it's objectively not <laughs> if my goal is getting to Las Vegas, I'm heading the wrong direction. So that, that like, even though, sure. like, you know what I mean? So now there, there might be other variables to add into it. Like maybe I go, I want to go to Las Vegas, but I want to stop here along the way. Well, then the route changes, you know what I mean? And this is like kind of a way that I conceptualize sort of like uh, the way that we move through the world and how there's this weird, um, border i guess between i've had i've had this conversation with you and i've had this conversation with my friend uh james jenneman about like sort of like the 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 overlap between like the objective and the subjective when it comes to morality or when it comes to just truth and it's like there are principles that we use and they're kind of like mathematic laws how like those are sort of universal and objective but then the uh landscape that we play in is sort of subjective based upon where we decide we want to go, but we have to play by, or it's like chess. Like there's almost a near infinite moves that you can make in chess, but you have to play chess by like, you know, the, the rook can only move in this way and the queen can move in this way and the pawns can move in this way. Um, I think that kind of makes sense, but I, I threw a lot out there. So go ahead and. Well, no, and I, 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 you know, so one of the things that, that you were talking about that it reminded me of is the, uh, that John Verveke uses a concept called transjective to talk about those sort of objectively understood mm. things that are objectively true across the board, but that we essentially uh, apply to our subjective worldviews in a way that only the individual can. Right. And so I think that right. that there's, there, it's a, he created the word, I think, I mean, he just kind of said, Hey, this makes sense. And I think, but it's a useful way of thinking about exactly that paradigm that you were talking about, where there's a general sense of the direction that is true. 
Um, but you still have to apply it to your own unique, you know, needs and perceptions and the tools available to you that you have, right? If you have a car, it's different than if you don't, or if you have to take a Greyhound bus, or if you realize you don't want to go to Vegas because it's kind of a weird place or whatever else, you know, like, right? Like different things may happen along the way, right. but the objectively true things are true for everyone. Like it, it Vegas is a, a place that has, you know, a certain appeal to, uh, you know, uh, tourists, but at the same time, um, you know, the, the unique value, like Las Vegas has an objective set of descriptions, but the way that we apply those subjectively, and I, he may have a more specific way that may not be the best way to apply that concept of transjective, but it's a, a, a concept that he uses to essentially talk about like psychological truths in the cognitive science sense that are, you know, true, whether we like it or not in our subjective values. And it's similar to Jordan Peterson um, with a lot of the way that he you know, describes you know, the sort of nature of reality and his criticism of postmodernists. Because, yeah, I, I have a, a somewhat positive connotation of, of postmodernism as well in the sense that it is about subjective values, that everything does boil, like action is always going to be based on subjective values. No matter how objectively true we think those values are, it still goes through the, the it's still going to be processed through our, our unique, you know, individual lens of how we see the world and how we, you know, value the world and the resources around us. So, um yeah. But one of the things in terms of the, the Jordan Peterson and Bob Murphy uh, conversation, to go back to that, uh, one thing that Jordan Peterson talks about sometimes is with systemic racism. And this goes with some of the postmodernist stuff as well. Mm-hmm. And he mentioned it in the Bob Murphy interview, and he kept saying the phrase central tendency. Uh, the claim systemic racism is about central tendencies. And that's not at least from the sense of like I had an interesting experience. I read the book How to Be an Anti-Racist. And the phrase systemic racism doesn't really have much to do with central tendency. What it's about, and, and the thing that Jordan Peterson understands so well, is that what the postmodernists, the um, you know, sort of leftists that he argues with, is that they want equity of outcome, right? right? Equality of outcome is the problem that he realizes that that's a really bad problem. And essentially what the systemic racism people who use that phrase as you know a bludgeon, right, in the way that he understands that they're doing that, the reason – the, I, the part that I, I think he misses in the way that he describes it is that they're using it as a bludgeon with the, with the goal of equity of outcome. But he's looking at it as though they're trying to abolish the system or smash the system, but they're trying to expand the system to be a tool of social engineering, to be a, social, a systemic anti-racist machine, right? That's more of what they're trying to do and in the goal of creating some equity of outcome, uh, utopian sort of, you know, idealized system. So I think that it's it was it, it's just one of those things where I feel like sometimes he just like you know we we kind of caricature who we're arguing with, but I think he would you know definitely uh, like he he would understand in a very deep way why they would use systemic racism to bring about that sort of uh, you know argument that equity of outcome is a goal, political power is the tool to create that. So we call the bad thing systemic racism so we can use it to be systemically anti-racist. And so anyway, I just think that's a, an interesting dynamic to that Bob Murphy conversation that, um, that I thought was just, you know, missing a little important con- in, in terms of understanding the, you know, cause understanding both the purpose of their argument, like, like why they promote that argument so much, as well as what they mean by it. Um, that, yeah, it's, yeah, you know, systemic racism is a topic that, like, I know a lot of libertarians have tried to 
like hijack that from the left and sort of like make it a libertarian talking point. And it's like, and I can see where they're coming from. And it's not that I like, there's part of it that I kind of like, I see and agree with like, yeah, like you can talk to groups and point out how like your group has this disproportionate outcome that is, you know, like we can attribute to the state's intervention and, 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 and these laws and these policies and stuff. Um, you know what I mean? But yeah. I think the I think the failure of analysis is when you and Jordan Peterson goes into this a lot. Um, you know, it, it's not helpful to look at things in a single variable analysis. Sure. And like, if you do that, you can do it with almost anything. You know what well, I mean? I, and it kind of yeah, sure. goes to that, like correlation is not causation. Yes. Well, and, and I think and, that yeah. my, my contention is that I think Jordan Peterson thinks that that's what they're arguing. But that's not really what most, at least like in terms of the anti-racist book, the one that's the you know big bestseller in whatever leading literature, of a lot of that stuff. That's not actually the argument that they're making about systemic racism. It's much more about the fact that it's like because equity of outcome is different, then we can describe it as racist. So the only way to fix it is to make it intentionally anti-racist and use right. the state as a means to manipulate things, and because it's not really yeah. Which is just so like, and I think I think part of the problem is like. I'm not trying are, to I defend think... that. I feel like if I'm trying to, if it ever sounds like I'm saying that I agree with those ideas, obviously that's not what I'm trying to say. No, no, I just no. Think I, it's, I, yeah. it's that Jordan Peterson was engaging with a sort of a straw man argument, obviously unintentionally. Well, I, I, I feel like yeah. he was, but I think he was because he wanted to make their argument better. Exactly. Yes. And their argument was being cause, overly cause, like, generous. Yes. Right. Because sure. like, because they're because you are right that their argument is really not what Jordan Peterson is saying. It is yes. basically yes. disparity equals discrimination. Yes. Which is stupid. Yes. Sure. <laughs> well, but but I mean, the it, thing like, about it, it is that it in terms of the praxeological sense, right? It is a useful argument that has utility. It captivates people and it true. keeps people to shut up. Right. So yeah. there's there's a, a method to it that I think he would recognize in the same way that he looks at other things about the suppression of free speech being so dangerous that that's what this is. And one thing I may have said this, you know, with you, but I, I think using that framework, right. Using the way that they describe systemic racism and by, by they, I mean like the, the anti-racist doctrine and stuff, both the, whatever, you know, the, especially that book that I read that I found so fascinating. Um, but the, the, the main, the, the, the core of the argument, is to use the system to fix the racism so if they talk about the racism then they can use the system to fix it so it's not really about the system being having a central tendency towards racism that's not an you know what the, their argument is but instead it's um you know i think that the uh the, the sort of the trade-off is always going to lead to continuing systemic racism unless there's radical change Right. And so right. The, the the sort of policies are never clear. They're never clearly stated. But one thing that, like I, like I said, I, I think I said before was that I think Social Security fits their description of fits that description of a, a racist, systemically racist thing better than any other policy in terms of just simply the, the statistics of the demographic changes, life expectancy. And, you know, with some of the technical stuff within how the Social Security system works about paying out spousal benefits, it's a huge tilt in terms of some groups benefiting, other groups losing, and older people are benefiting at the expense of younger people, especially younger workers. So it's it fits the description of systemic racism. And to me, like Social Security just taking so much money from people who are working, taking all of their discretionary income in a lot of cases, that like that's the sort of thing that entrenches wealth inequality 
it's like the, the ultimate example of systemic racism, but that's not in terms of in their, you know, framework. Now, I'm not saying that that's the best way to argue why social security is so insidious and, and tyrannical. Um, but I think that it, it, it fits it, you know, it definitely fits into the, the, what, um, and, and so in the same way that social security fits into that, the way that it's not, that that's not a central tendency of, of social security, right? Like it's not, it wasn't, designed to be racist and maybe it was on some level it was always fdr right but um i think it, that wasn't at least the explicit goal so it's not necessarily the central tendency as much as if there is like you said the the if there's however you said it was really good though if there's something then there's discrimination if oh yeah disparity uh, equals disparity, discrimination yes, exactly. yeah. yeah which yeah i mean it's very you know the, the problem is a lot of people and like you know i know I had a little a criticism lately that I use the word time preference to describe things that aren't like, like I'm using it too vaguely, but like, that's kind of intentional. Like I know time preference is more specifically about economics, but I think it can also be used to describe just behavior in general. And I think the Definitely. left engages, engages in a very like high time preference fashion because like, that's what, that's kind of like what works. Like their strategy is kind of like smart because like, yeah, like, you know, people are not actually naturally, uh, going to like without like without intentionally doing so people are generally going to act and respond to high time time high time preference sorts of uh st stimuli and and then act in a high time preference fashion than they are low time preference like it's a lot harder to get somebody to act in a low time time preference way and the whole idea of like it, it also equates to, like ideas of like people equate simplicity with truth a little bit it's kind of like a very poor praxis for for discovering what is true, and it's like, oh well, if it's if it's something that I can state in like five words, that sounds better than like something that takes five minutes to explain, and it's like a very poor praxis for like discerning what is true and what is false. That like maybe works for some things, but then is going to fall very short in others because like there's a lot of things that are like more complex but are true when you but you can compare them to a lie or a falsity that seems very simple like the idea that like hey uh we can fix inequality if the state just prints money problem solved like that sounds simple right the austrians respond to that with a very like well no that doesn't work for and then you know like <laughs> takes yeah. five ten minutes or really takes like you know like you know listen to a 45 minute lecture from bob murthy or go re go read his books or whatever but the problem is people like they're not incentivized to do so they're like yeah but like your arguments take all this studying and thinking about things and explaining and just but yeah hey just print money give people money they're not poor anymore problem solved and it's just like this mental block that's all because of like this high time preference behavior that the left is really good at like pushing a message that really weaponizes that high tie preference um, uh, thinking uh, to, to, to get them votes and to keep them in power. Sure. Well, I think, you know, one thing, I don't remember if, if we talked about this before, but I, I think of my libertarianism as a far left political view. That's the way I conceive of it. And so the way I look at it in my little the paradigm is that the left operates from arguments of pathos and the sort of pathos ethos logos pair uh you know those three options of how ideas appeal to people that the left operates from those emotional appeals 
whereas the right has this is the authority we have the constitution and you know whatever the status quo and the left right paradigm comes from you know the french and rothbard has the you know left from left and right or whatever uh essay that is certainly you know i i think um impacted the way i see this but i think the idea that the right is about you know maintaining the establishment protecting uh you know the um, the status quo in a way and conserving, right? That conservative nature, whereas the left wants to change things. And as an anarcho-capitalist or libertarian or whatever, we want radical change. And the whole left-right thing, going back to the French king, the right wanted to keep the king, the left wanted to get rid of the king. Now that left, just like many other lefts, gets a little bit too emotional, a little bit too excited and does all sorts of terrible damage to everything. But that's when they, you know, cross that place from, you know, in terms of instead of being empathetic, and making the emotional argument based on you know logical appeals and consistency as well because in the political space like you said the the high time preference is rewarded in politics and so making the arguments based on who the government is hurting to me that's the best way for libertarians to present our arguments is anti hierarchy anti you know oppression and pro radical change and those are all left wing ideas i'm not I, I don't see the effectiveness of libertarians saying we need to protect the constitution you know, and, uh, uh, you know, reduce government spending marginally, but maintain whatever, you know what I mean? Like, like, it's not, we, yeah. we don't want to, well, or even like, think, end, yeah. even like saying, end the fed, which like, I'm That's guilty left. of talking yeah. about the fed and, exactly. you know, like, like, you know, almost to the point of like near like autistic levels of just like the fed, the fed, the, you know what I mean? Like, you know, yes. and, well, and it, yeah. it's true, but are people more incentivized to listen to you when you're talking about those things? Not really. And I kind of like I've, I agree with you, actually. It's like we almost like the left is using a praxis that we need to like learn from. You know what I mean? Well, they like always win. Yeah, right? they, the yeah exactly. Space, it's the progressivism is conservatism driving or I said it backwards, but conservatism is progressivism driving the speed limit where they yeah. just are, you know, the right wing just travels behind and, you know, keeps whatever the left had in power, maybe does a couple little things. But, you know, that's the way most political systems evolve is that the left makes it bigger and bigger or reduces. And I think, you know, some of the wins for the left, or at least one was the marriage equality. Right? I think that was an example of, you know, opposing a law that had different outcomes for different people that was based on sort of traditionalist views that reduced people's property rights to express and live their life in the same way because of some moral values attempted to be dictated by the state. So I think like in that sense, libertarians being on the left side of that issue and the left actually winning, that was one, one very few way where the left was against a rigid government control of people, right? They wanted to right. have marriage equality. So I think, you know, in, in all sorts of examples like that, the left is on the side of the emotional arguments. And I think that that's, what's, that's what wins in politics, for one. Libertarians can do that very well. Right. Ending the Fed is because the Fed is stealing from everyone. It's not like end the Fed because of some technical argument. I, I think we should be making the end the Fed argument based on that same argument that the Bitcoin guys make about how insidious the nature of fiat currency is to every aspect of life. You know, I mean, yeah. like it's, it's yep. in, invest. It, it, they, you know, manipulate every single price. And they paper over losses and the, and the inflation and the way that it's it's stealing time. And well, one thing that I saw recently on uh, on the usdebtclock.org website, which is always a fascinating, you know, it just ticks, ticks, ticks. But yeah. it was the, the the change in median wages over 20 years was like $6,000. But the change in house prices went up by $160,000. Yes. And, like that. and it was just amazing to see how, how big of a difference that is. And that is exactly what the Fed is doing. Like that's, 
how right. Fed policy impacts the, the price signals right. all throughout the economy. So we can make every single argument that we have as libertarians should be framed through who it's hurting, who the government is hurting, who they're smashing with their policies. And so that's why I think of it as the left wing arguments. Uh, and we can be very, you know, anti-corporate in that same way of, of being against the corporate power and the intellectual property. That's a very left wing argument. Um, and, and in the same way that like the anti-intellectual property argument is very similar to the anti-enclosure sorts of arguments about when, you know, property, uh, the, the expansive role of assigning property rights of the government being against that is another way of being against oppressive hierarchy. Again, a left wing argument. So I think a lot of and, and I would probably by most libertarian people, you know, as a big Tom Woods fan, I'm probably a right libertarian in many ways, according to how people think about it. And I, you know, but but the way I, I think about it in terms of how we should frame our political arguments is definitely from the left. And I think that, um, yeah, I, I just think it's a, it's a useful way of of seeing how to try to beat the left. You have to out left them. But also notice that the left is so much more dangerous. I think that's also why we have to engage on that side of the political you know, argument is because the left is more prone to acting on all of their emotions and that high time preference is enables more of a rationalization of violence and oppression and corruption and, and all of that that comes with the expansive political system. So. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, real quick, somebody asked if they, uh, if I have a feed, they can listen to the audio later. Uh, yes, it's everywhere. Apple podcasts, Google podcasts, Spotify. So uh, yeah, you can definitely find it. Um, if you follow me on Twitter, on Facebook, I usually post the audio stuff, uh, the day after the live. So, uh, thanks for asking that Skylar. Um, anyway, back to, yeah, that, that's a really great point. And, you know, one of the ways I attack the fed and I, I'm actually like, what I do is when I have to talk to the left, anyone on the left about the fed, what I do is I attack the left from the left and bring up the fed. Cause like, it's like, listen, cause I, I know how they think. Cause I used to be one of them as like, well, you hate inequality, right? You hate the uh, rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. You hate that wages have been stagnant. You hate that uh, corporations get these huge bailouts. Okay, well, let me let me talk to you about what's at the source, what's at the bottom of all of those things. Yeah. Well, one of the ones <laughs> and, that, and, that and, yeah. yeah, well, one of the phrases that a lot of times those people like is to get money out of politics. <laughs> it's like, what the heck does that mean, right? Are you talking about like, right. you know, obviously they're talking about political donations, but that's such a silly way of no, and that's imagining the thing. some solution, right? Yeah. What I tell them is like, listen, I want to get money out of politics too, but <laughs> yeah. the only way to do that is you actually what you can't what you can't do is go after the money. You have to go after the politics. Year exactly. to the politics, yes. there's no money to go towards the politics. Well, you know what I mean? Like political power essentially creates a market type of environment to you know collect revenue for political privileges, right? They sell whatever power they have to uh, you know whatever interests are are most valuable to them, right? That's right. It, it's 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 easy to describe the 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 incentive structure of politicians and the problems that inherently are built into the bureaucratic uh, coercive system. Just Joe, simply we just, in terms we just, of yeah, what their goals just pass are. A, if we just pass a law banning political donations, though, then it'll stop. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's all we need to do. And, and just to imagine like, what that even means, right? And, and I think yeah. the Citizens United case, the, you mm -hmm. know, that was a moment, I guess that was maybe 2009 or 10. Um, and, you know, that was around the time when I was kind of newer to libertarianism. And I, I learning about that and kind of hearing both sides of the argument became really, really clear who was right. And 
you know, but but at first, it, you know, just kind of hearing the overall thing is like, well, yeah, I don't want politicians to get more donations. You know, it, it, you could see how you could kind of right. it, without, uh, you know, really thinking through both sides of it. You can see how that one argument is appealing. Right. If we take away the ability of those rich people over there to buy political power, that would solve it. But that is you know, how the very, very quick in. and simple analysis. You realize, oh, that's not going to do anything. You know, all that does is just, again, create another market or, you know, prohibition attempt at prohibition in the marketplace by the state. That you, well, you know, say is a very quick analysis took me about three, three to four <laughs> years to, to come to sure. the conclusion. But, yeah. but yes, I mean, now it seems very intuitive. But back then, uh-huh. it, it, yes. seemed, yeah. it, it seemed equally intuitive just to be like, um well if we just ban it if we just make it they don't give political donations then like that solves the problem and then what it's what i remember this was a point that came up in a debate between um shank uger and ben shapiro um and obviously i have a lot of i kind of have a lot of problems with ben shapiro now but he's at least you know like he has some libertarian arguments and occasionally he gets one right and this is the time where he got it right he said if you ban the political donations they're just going to do it behind closed doors dude like they're just going to do it like like they're not going to stop doing it. Like you can't just take money out of politics. Well, it's like, just like, you know, yeah. <laughs> they, they appoint people to boards and they, you know, have all sorts of paydays right. from, you know. Anyway, you could look at all the different politicians and how they find their connections after office. And there's not direct payments to them, but it's it's the network opportunities that they have. And so, I mean, it's just anyway, it's, it's a, one of those examples where the left is pointing at a at something. That is in no way the main problem, right? It's that path they're pointing in the north way instead of going towards Vegas. They're they're completely distracted by something that is not going to accomplish their stated goals. Now, I think one part of that as well is that the more sinister side of it is that you know, attempting to control financial you know transactions involving political donations is just a way to punish people, right? There's so much paperwork that's already involved in all of that process and they, they have all that regulatory system that just enables them to have a method of punishing people. So it's not always just about the idea of trying to reduce corruption. Obviously, it's not about reducing corruption in politics, but even you know, in that sense, whatever that system would look like, the mechanisms to try to control that um, would just be terrible, but it would empower some people in the political system, which is you know generally the goal um, of political arguments unfortunately there's something that that's coming to mind i want to get your thoughts on it but like you know one of the the other rules of of jordan is to uh set your house in perfect order before you criticize the 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 world um kind of like the whole clean your room meme and you know there's something there that kind of connects to what we're talking about i think because like a lot of the people on the left uh maybe sometimes on the right too i don't want to be too just one-sided in my criticisms but um you know they'll 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 come out and i think what makes it easier for them to fall into these like you know being very easily uh duped into these you know like high time time preference ways of like you know looking at the world and you know coming up with these like proposed solutions is that they have a very skewed understanding of of humans and how humans behave and act and like the incentive structures and i feel like there's something there that like uh doing that rule that jordan peterson talked about like setting your own house in perfect order and like uh like treating yourself like you're someone you're responsible for like when you spend a lot of time getting your own life in order and then you actually accomplish that you realize wow that was hard and there were no easy solutions. 
And I had to look at myself and, and judge what I was doing. Not, not through these, not through a lens of just like what, what, what's immediately pleasurable, not what's immediately, you know, uh, expedient or gives me what I want right there in the, in the here and now I had to sacrifice. I had to put off, oh, sorry, I hit my mic. <laughs> my hand. I had to get, I get very animated. Um, <laughs> I had to, you know, but like when you're cleaning your own room, you're getting your, your life in order. You have to put off a lot of things that you want to do now for the future. Because you know, you know what, if I put in this hard work now, that will benefit me in the long run and I will have a greater reward. I feel like the act of doing that, if people did that more often, when they came, when they get involved in like, okay, now like my life's in order, I'm going to get involved in my community, I'm going to get involved in politics, I'm going to, you know, set out and try to make the world a better place, they would at least be far more likely to be very skeptical of a lot of the uh, propaganda and the proposed solutions that uh, that the left puts out there. That you know what I mean? Does that make yeah. sense? Well, I think I mean kind of. I like I I don't really disagree exactly with what you're saying, but I don't think it's it's as universally true for all. Like I think that there are a lot of people that are very well in order with what we would think about as you know all of their day to day responsibilities, successful in their careers. And their view is that those solutions are necessary because other people aren't capable of it. That it's a very, you know, that their level of competence that not even necessarily that they're wrong on looking down and not thinking that other people are capable of making some of the same, you know, successful decisions that they're making. Um, but I think that that is a motivating factor is that there's a certain condescension towards, um, uh, you know, at least by a lot of the limousine liberals or whatever you might want to call them. Uh, and many, many times I think very well-intentioned people that just haven't thought about it through the lens of what the problems are when the political system takes that role in people's lives, where it takes their ability to be to take that responsibility by subsidizing irresponsibility. And so I think that that part of it, like, again, that doesn't exactly it, – it's not, it's not a really a counter argument to what you were saying, just like a, a tangential – you know, point that, that, you know, that's just a different, that, that, that also motivates a lot of people. And, and the sort of, you know, like you can see how condescending they are when they talk about these things. You know what I mean? Like it, it's just built into when they talk about the American people, it, that, that that's not a phrase that they're using of like the, all of these smart people that can take care of themselves. They're saying these people that we are taking care of, right. That that's sort of built into the, the political solution. And I think that a lot of people that are advocating for those expansive political solutions, have their lives in order in in at least the superficial ways that Jordan Peterson talks and uh, superficial is the wrong word, but in the, in the sort of obvious, uh, you know, in terms of doing all of their chores and keeping things tidy and, uh, you know, being financially independent, uh, relatively, guess, uh, the, you know, that, you know, and I'm sure like there's exceptions, right? Like there aren't like, this sure. isn't something that's universal, but, um, sorry, can you, can you turn quick, you turn your speakers down a little bit. I'm getting a, little bit of a feedback yeah, yeah. which is just like messing me up a bit <laughs> all right that all right that's a little better um so yeah um i think that part of the um part of part of where i kind of disagree with you is that uh, and you kind of hinted at it it's like their life might seem in order but i would i would probably challenge that the 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 order in which their life seems to be in is probably superficial and it's probably not long lasting but that's probably like the, 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 the one caveat to my uh, – what I was trying to say was that like 
your life has to be in order and and even doesn't jordan peterson talk about this like it has to be in order in a way that's good for you good for your family good for your community and and also like it's good today good tomorrow good a sure. month from now a year so it's like and a lot of people will get like well they'll get successful but they've done it in ways that like you know then they come crashing down and and like they they have these huge like fall huge falls from grace and stuff and we, we've seen that a lot um you know uh, over over the past few years so sure. I, like your, your your pushback's uh important though because i think it's like we have to recognize that getting your life in order isn't just like oh i i, I make a lot of money and i can travel and it's not just those superficial yeah. markers it's like it's well, kind of like what jesus talks about like a, a bad tree cannot bear good fruit sure well i think in a big part of the the cleaning up your room thing and, and just the overall you know making your the make it one room as beautiful as you can or whatever that those sorts of arguments are about developing a sense of purpose and meaning and applying that to your environment in a way that supports your pursuit of that meaning and that purpose right so it's like it's not putting the world in order so that you don't have to deal with it anymore. It's putting your world in order so that it supports the pursuit of your interests, right? And so that putting it in order is developing, uh, like wherever you put your stuffs when you need it, you know, you need it for that other purpose. So you put it where you're going to put it. So you have it when you need it kind of thing. So, right, like what if, it, if it's a big mess, then you don't have it when you need it. So you're less, you know, prepared to pursue your goals, to, you know, use the means in pursuit of ends. And so I think that the, the I guess the, um, what I was trying to get at before is essentially that order can become, you know, tyrannical, can become oppressive in and of itself. It, it, you know, over, overly conscientious or neurotic, you know, sorts of people can have their lives in very specific order in a way that becomes, you know, too orderly and too, uh, you know, it constrains their ability to, uh, you know, continue to be adaptive to their environment and, you know, becomes like a stagnant sort of thing, which that's a very nature of government. So I think like people can become their own tyrants in a sense in their own household over their own future and, you know, essentially bring themselves down. But that, and, and that, that same tendency, I think at least re is reflected in the power hungry politicians and power hungry people that are so excited about putting everyone else's lives in order. Right. Like, and not, not necessarily that, yeah, I, I just think like there's, there's some sort of connection there uh, to a certain type of people and their message where it's not just about people who are in disorder and want help, but people who imagine themselves in such perfect order and feel like they're, you know, the benevolent helpers, the, the right. you know, like, 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 you know, the U S and Afghanistan, right. We're helping them put their house in order. The U S government just went over there and we have it all in order. So we went over there and helped them put it in order. That That's the sort of, you know, tendency uh, and, and, you know, arrogance, self-deceit, really, that uh, that fuels it, I think, a lot of times. 20, on, 20 on more years to flatten the war on terrorism. <laughs> that's good. I like that. Yeah. But, um, yeah, and, you know, there's – crap, I had, a, I had a thought. I lost it to make my joke. <laughs> that was not – that was a very high time preference behavior. I was ah, like, yeah. you know, good philosophical re re response. No, I got to make a quick little one-liner. <laughs> yeah. Um, to, to try to get it back to where I was going. Um, nah, completely lost it. Maybe it'll come back to me. Um, yeah, I, there's to, – to respond to what you were saying, yeah, there's there's something about, uh, you know, people – I guess I was talking about this earlier and I've been talking about it a lot in my podcast, people who uh, – and it's okay. I'm kind of, this is going, I'm remembering now what I was going to say. 
there's, you know, Jordan Peterson talks a lot about how, like, he has two books now. One's an antidote to chaos. One's an antidote to order. I'm mm-hmm. still reading through that one. Um, and, you know, I've gone back and forth sort of like on, you know, is order something that, you know, like, like I said earlier, does order have to be something that we attach to the state or attach to monopolization? And I, I think no. But I also think this kind of ties hand in hand with what Jordan Peterson talks about, where he says what you want to do is straddle that line between chaos and order, have one foot in each. And isn't anarcho-capitalism essentially that? It's kind of like having a foot in order and a foot in chaos. Because like it's chaos a little bit in a sense that it's decentralized and it's not like this superimposed top-down order. But it's also order in a sense that like it's not complete chaos where like we believe in private private property rights, we believe in self-ownership. We're not like, you know, anarcho-capitalism is a rejection of a like very uh anti like like anarchism that goes to the point where it's not just about no rulers, but about no rules. Anarcho-capitalism sure. comes in and goes like, no, it's not, you know, we need rules. We just don't need these these giant authoritarian uh, rulers that impose the rules through this top-down structure, we can have rules through a decentralized system. So in that way, like I think anarcho-capitalism is the like political philosophy that is like a natural conclusion of the things that Jordan Peterson uh, teaches in his books. And it's kind of like, uh the antidote like and it's like it's almost like chaos and order are uh like it's almost like a different uh horse uh horseshoe theory kind of thing where it's like if you get really far into chaos you'll almost revert into this very tyrannical order and and same the other way like if you have this really tyrannical order it will almost turn into chaos but if you go towards the middle where you literally have that foot in each that's where you want to be and that's where uh you know your your actions and your your philosophy kind of line up and you you can actually uh you know the most efficiently accomplish your goals and and like you're you're uh acting in a way that is good for you and good for your neighbors and good for you know like 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 jordan peterson talks about where it's just continuing to move out sure well i to uh to tie that back into the way I see like the left and right part of it is like the, the right argument is the property rights side of it, right? It's about the natural law in terms of the order, the natural law order that we do own ourselves and our bodies and our property and we own our time. So the property is, you know, a, a product of that. And so that dynamic, and then the other side of it, what Jordan Peterson says about, you know, information that we, you know, perceive the world, we take it in, and that information informs us. We are in formation through that process, right? And so that formation continues to change ourself and our identity and, uh, and our abilities to operate. Um, but one of the phrases I also think is, um, you know, just like the, a, a good way of saying it is like to perceive is to suffer or something like that. I think it's an Aristotle thing where it's like the more that you understand the world, there's that there's that suffering that's built into it where the the, the pathos, the chaos of all of that stuff going on is informing us and is creating these senses of uneasiness that require us to act. And so, like you are saying that, you know, kind of recognizing both sides of it, having self-awareness about what we are, what our goal should be, how we're pursuing the logos and, you know, in contrast to pursuing more higher time preference goals um, that, that 
you know, like we, we have to deal with both now and future to operate now because all of our action is oriented towards future, you know, goals. And so I think, you know, what happens with, you know, outside of the anarcho-capitalist framework is that the political system comes in and messes with that, right? It, it steals our time. It steals our ability to see as clearly, to perceive the world around us as clearly because there's all these threats of violence and all this, you know, the manipulation of prices through the regulatory monetary policy and whatever else that the state is doing to manipulate and mess with society. Um, so I think, you know, that that's, you know, a good way of putting it the way that you said. And I think it, it ties exactly into, uh, you know, Jordan Peterson's concepts of, you know, how, essentially how identity is not something that you just decide for yourself. It's something that, mm. you know, is, is a socialized aspect of your being. And I think that that is both in the chaos and order, right? Like you kind of know some stuff, but there's always going to be changes. It's, it's always going to have a dynamic aspect to life. Um, so there's always going to be that chaos coming at you and you have to figure out how to continuously like, right. It's not put your life in order and then you're good for a while. Like it's, it's a constant process of continuing to try to keep your life as in right. Order, yeah. Like as, the right amount yeah. of order. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like and your identity values in order. Right. Like when he talks about like your, your identity and how you label yourself, he's like, he talks about those things being things that you negotiate in yeah. society. And that's very much kind of like, word, right. right. And it's kind of like how Austrian economics works. It's like, how is value? How is the price of something uh, deducted? Um, how is like, you know, how, how does the market come up with the decisions of like, um, you know, how much of one thing to make, how much of another thing to make? And like, why, why does that work? And central planning fail? It's like, well, like, we, like, one, you're talking about, uh, you know, how fiat currency messes with the, the prices of things. And really, price is a marker that allows the, the capitalists to know, like, you know, what to do. Like, they, they use prices as signals to know kind of, like, what to do in the market. And when you mess with those, then, you know, obviously the calculations get all messed up. Well, and also, um, it's about whether or not their investments are profitable, whether or not they're right. actually adding value to society or if they're losing money. Whereas, and again, if the right. pricing was are distorted, it, it changes their ability to assess their success. Right? So I think that's a, a important part of it as well. Like you yeah. don't even know whether or not you're doing well because of all of those problems. So there's not even that ability to self-assess. So it, it like, it fosters a sense of self-deception. And one of the phrases that John Vervecki uses to describe, you know, human, it's the distributed cognition. So there are those, uh, episodes that with Robert Breedlove on his podcast with John Reiki, they talk a lot about how the market is a, a mechanism of distributive cognition. And in contrast to the central planner where, you know, resources are allocated with less information because people are not providing their values to have that dynamic market process. Um, and so like, it just, it all fits so well with the psychology of it and the economics. Um, that's really, it, it's the, the same conversation. We just kind of use different words, you know? Yeah, for sure. You know, one of the things maybe we'll touch on this with the time we have left. Uh, one of the things that Jordan Peterson also has talked a bit about, and this connects to like one of the wedge issues within the libertarian world and movement, is like the idea of borders. And like we like left and right have so many different like axioms or ways of defining them. And one of the ways that Peterson talks about left versus right, and it kind of ties a little bit into like people who look at like the psychology of like political there's almost like political determinism or or people at least like your your personality traits at least have a very like they're a very strong indicator of what your political views might be and 
um, one of the key issues that he talks about is borders, like, and not just like state borders, but just the idea of borders in general. And that like left, um, left leaning people, like people who, who, who have very like left or liberal minds uh, are very anti-borders because borders uh, are kind of like uh, barriers to the transfer of information. And that kind of like correlates to kind of like what, like I remember Hayek talking about a lot and, and, and Mises too, about like how, if you have like like the problem with like you know why free trade is so important why the movement of people is so important to the market um and because like without the free movement of labor and goods and stuff like that like the market is restricted it's not going to work as well um etc you know what i mean like when you create these high like borders in a sense like imposed state borders not borders that are you know just like natural borders created by private property they are almost in a way uh just as intrusive to the market working as fiat currency is right uh because because they're because they're not real they're kind of artificial um on the other hand there's something harmful that a lot of libertarians point out to like if we have if we have states and we have like no no border enforcement and that's that like um there are still perverse incentive structures that the state has just through the mere like through its mere existence right and so um i'm trying i'm trying to like it, it makes sense in my head i'm trying to figure out how to like like explain this very well but it's like i just notice a lot that like libertarians a lot especially like in our circles like in the mises austrian circles and stuff some people are very pro open borders some people are very closed like like more, no we can't have open borders uh we all kind of agree yeah like the the, the axiom like the, the true model we want is private property uh and the only borders are those of private property but like how do we you know there's debates to how do, how do we get there but i know that like it, and so like it's funny when jordan peterson talks about being against borders being a left something that's very like like very indicative of people who have a very like left-leaning mindset versus those who have a, a right meaning a uh, right leaning mindset are more pro border um and yeah you know, there's different types of borders obviously and stuff but i don't know there, there's something there that i find kind of kind of interesting and and i don't know i'm trying to like uh extrapolate uh f from that like something that i think needs to be talked about because it's uh yeah, yeah go, go ahead well, I like think... i've been well, you know, I think it fits right into, like I was saying about the ethos argument versus the pathos argument, that this is the line that is the ethos argument. This is the authority. We wrote it down on a sheet of paper. You cannot cross this line, right? It's a very argument based on, you know, the appeal to authority. And, and, and so like, because we said so, and we have the power, you can't come here. And that's right. true for property rights as well, right? Like on the micro level, that's what a property right is, is the right to, you know, exclude the use of others from you know, you have the exclusive ownership of that property. So I think in terms of like, in the way that you described borders and with a part of it there is that that's the same concept of property rights and why that's so important to protect, you know, the nature of the individual. And, but I think in the political, you know, with, for the most part, political conversations within the Liberty movement is almost as stupid on this issue as it is in the regular you know, partisan sort of stuff, at least from my perspective, most of it is the, the both of those are platitudinal like lines, open borders, closed borders, like doesn't really mean that much because 
I, at least that's the way I look at it. I, 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 there, I think some people make very, very, you know, uh, excellent principled arguments for uh, open borders and people make political pragmatic arguments for why the libertarian party can't be open borders that I think are both, you know, valid arguments, whatever, fine. But, um, you know, on some level, a lot of it is just talking past each other because, you know, a lot of the, 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 like, I, I think, especially because they're, they're kind of both, yeah. kind of both right. Because it's like, cause it's sure. like, yeah, cause it's exactly. like, it's like, yes, you need the free movement of people for a free market to work. And so that's why a lot of people in our circles will lean towards open borders. But then those who are a little bit skeptical of that go, okay, but we don't have a free market society and we're not anti all borders. Like we need private property borders. And so the free movement of people while the state exists is still uh, being interfered with by like, like, like the free movement of people across, like from anywhere into the United States yeah, it's just inherently uh, altered by the existence of the state and those exactly. political systems. So, so like, yeah, it might be better for the economy in a sense that there's free movement, but you can't say that the the movement of people in a open border state is really um, is comparable to what the movement of people would be in a like an actual true uh, anarcho capitalist society sure. where. Uh, movement wouldn't just be totally oh go wherever you want there'd be you know some kind of mark there'd be market mechanisms that would have you know uh, market regulations based upon uh private property norms maybe incorporated cities covenant communities yeah contracts right but right so So i think one of the things that that plays into it as well right is i i stated two arguments you know that are pretty like solid good faith arguments right but there are also people that are open borders for accelerationism right let's have a whole bunch yeah. of people come in and just wreck the entitlement <laughs> system right like there are sometimes. so many different yeah. ways you can form <laughs> arguments i think one thing that this is a great example of is how in so much of the political discourse what happens is that the people on the left say yo those right wingers are you know they want to keep their ethno nation state or whatever and then the people on the right you know are making arguments that are you know or the like it, there's a lot of bad faith arguments mixed in as well and most many of the people that are forming arguments are only arguing with the caricatures with the straw man rather than with the actual like somewhat sound arguments on either side of the conversation so i think sure. that that's where like because yeah it just it depends and so i think you know it's it's a great example of how uh you know the subjective values inform our priorities we may have very similar principles in how we view property rights and self-ownership but when you apply them to the unique circumstances and the unique subjective values that people have in that subjective value hierarchy process of what's more important you know trying to reduce the catastrophe that is the entitlement system uh, or trying to you know ensure that the border patrol aren't whipping people in texas and you know we don't build stupid walls that don't even accomplish what they're supposed to right and and like just all so i just think it's it's an example of something that's like so important you know that has never had any political progress made it's only gotten worse and it's just a perfect example of the stagnation of the political system and how so much of the conversation around it is so stupid and and so like counterproductive if anything and and where the 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 nature of the political discussion becomes fear-mongering versus fear-mongering, right? Like it's, it's, you know, yeah. if, if we don't have the wall, whatever is going to happen. If we, you know, have the wall, all those people are going to get hurt. And I think, you know, the libertarian argument should always be based on the size of who's getting hurt the most. And I don't think that we should be out there defending, you know, wanting to try to reduce the destruction of the entitlement system. So I, I do, I, I would certainly say that I, I hope that 
the winning libertarian arguments are much more on the side of open borders as much as possible, or at least they're always phrased in that direction, at least, you know, t- the way that I think we should be lobbying our political arguments out there, right? Like, because we, sure. you know, I, I think that's an important part of, of thinking about it. Even if we recognize the validity of more of the, you know, restricted immigration policies uh, that I think in terms of presenting the liberty argument, it should be much more on the sides of free movement always you know really so i um, agree and i've I've tried to like yeah yeah, i've tried to like uh do that like it's not either or i've tried to make more of a both and where it's like yeah i want to move towards more of a open borders system while also uh not like making straw man out of the people who have the more restricted border closed border positions because a lot of them bring up points or worries or arguments that have legitimacy to them that I think like you have to deal with them and realize like the solution can't be just open the border. Like you need to open the border while also promoting decentralization while also ending the war on drugs while also uh, working to like, um, you know, allow for more uh, allow people to, to seize more actual uh, self-ownership and actual like, being able to fully exercise property rights because part of the problem is people don't really have property rights in in america i mean they just rent you either rent from a landlord or you rent from the state (laughs) sure that's basically what that's basically what we have it's it's just like and some people like you gotta buy your own home it's like why it's like i almost sometimes feel like it's more libertarian to rent from a private landlord than it is to rent from a (laughs) corporate socialist state That's you know what I mean? I hadn't, I hadn't <laughs> thought of it that way, but I kind of like that. Yeah, there's you know what I mean? about that. Yeah, there's something about that. Like, like there's more. Like, I could more. I mean, I don't know. Up... I, yeah, but anyway, it's interesting. There, there's I, I've never heard that ways. argument before. Yeah, there's problems both ways. But I feel like if I was sure. renting from somebody and then like the state collapsed, I could very easily go to them and be like, okay, well, uh, we each have our own homes. Let me come up with an alternative way of compensating you for living in your property versus like. Uh, if if people are used to owning their property through the fiat land system that the state has, uh, then like there's a little bit of that murky area in between where it's like, okay, well now we don't have this centralized arbiter of who owns what. So, you know, what gives you a claim to this, this, and this? So it's, I don't know. It's, I do think a lot of, you know, in terms of property deeds and stuff, that, that is pretty decentralized and really handled at a municipal level that a lot of that was organized in a, it's not like federal property taxes. You know what true. I mean? True. It, is, is, it is state by, so I think in terms of relative sense that that's something, yeah, anyways, I, it plays into yeah. that, you know, in terms of, you know, how, but it's all through that. Yeah. It's all through the uh, federal reserve fiat dollar though. Of so course, it's, of it's, yeah. No, so not, it's, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's kind of at least somewhat not completely federalized. Although, I mean, you know, like we say that now, 10 years from now, people might look back at this and go, haha, remember when it used to not be federalized, but <laughs> yeah, they're trying to tax every oh, mile gosh. you drive and all this crazy new stuff. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's just crazy. I mean, it's a, it's a war against, the American people, it's a, it's a war against small business. I mean, as a small, as a small business person myself, I mean, I feel like the odds are just like, I feel like at some point I'm just going to have to like become a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Like a contractor because like doing business is just going to become impossible. You either have to work for some giant corporation or 
be a contractor and like like you like you are your own self business but like trying to run a small like five person ten person small business is just becoming harder and harder to do in our in our current economy yeah well and with compliance costs and the restrictions on all sorts of you know imports and um but one thing that i think is just to backtrack a little bit that comes into what we're talking about with um the stuff that the bitcoin you know robert relove and safedine especially talk about with how the nature of the state though it's its base of power it resides in the control of the money that that their ability to control the money supply and to tax money and to control all the bank accounts and you know that's how they have you know they sink their teeth into everything and that's why bitcoin could change that so uh, to me like it, it's a very it's it's an incredibly delicious white pill to imagine right i'm still you know at least it's hard to imagine the timeline for some of that stuff and and the 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 process of getting to more of a bitcoin centric economy um is fascinating to imagine but the principle of it is beautiful to me and i think it's exactly in line with praxeology in the sense of you know how to like the the means to prohibit this or at least to prevent the state from violating property rights that it's the ultimate property right um because you know, it's technologically sound and it has, you know, the ability to be trade, uh, you know, exchanged at very, very low costs. And so anyway, I just think that that's an interesting solution that has never been capable before. You know, there's never been any opportunity to, to sort of operate outside of, uh, you know, state controlled currencies or empire controlled currencies or however you want to call it, where the, you know, the powerful political hierarchies control the money. And if there's a way that they can't, all of a sudden they can't do anything right like they yeah. can't print money to send people to war they can't do all of the terrible things that they do that they've done through you know their ability to uh you know print money and and inflate i, I wish i could remember the yeah. exact uh points in countries that were cited but i remember listening to scott horton recently he pointed out like you, know, you look at the countries that america has gone after the most it's it's very often correlated with the countries that that don't like have that like mm. they don't like right. cooperate with like the U.S. dollar being like their reserve currency or like some something it's the like something there. Yeah. yeah, it's just like you know the 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 countries that don't uh, bow to the American empire and our you know our our giant uh, f- financial and military uh, might are the ones that uh, get targeted the most. Yeah, well, Yemen, the the war in Yemen is like such an obvious example of that. It's it's mind boggling that it went on for so yeah. long, and it I mean it's still really going on. It's just yeah, and it wasn't exactly U.S. troops; it was just U.S. stuff. And I think you know, in, in terms of in our hemisphere, the you know a lot of the aid aid that goes to Central American companies or uh, Central American company uh, countries and their governments is used to enforce drug war stuff. They give humanitarian aid to have their cops have SWAT teams so they can go and get the drug cartels. Like that's what a lot of that money that the U.S. government sends as foreign aid to those countries actually goes to. So it's like it's still even under the guise of nice words, they're just spreading more violence. So uh, <laughs> my cat's just like slowly walking his way over across my desk to knock shit over. It's just like I'm gonna prevent this. <laughs> get off my private property. <laughs> uh yeah well joe it's been a fantastic conversation um i always love having you on uh 
you know, I, I feel like I'm, I'm excited. You know, I, I hope Peterson has some more conversations with people in, in these circles. Maybe he has Murphy on again or, um, Dude, safe it, it, that's going to be so good. I'm, I'm yeah. serious. I really think, and, and I'll have to check that out. You know, is, is he thing... the one who, who was, is he the one or was it the other one that had that term that you said it was like, um, uh, crap, I'm remembering transjective. Yeah. Transjective. Yeah. Who, yeah that was John that... Verveke. That okay. was his stuff from the awakening from the meaning crisis. I'm and definitely going to check both of them out. Yeah. Like, I would say that you've cited John Verveke on Robert Breedlove's podcast has been the sort of stuff that, I mean, that's some just excellent content because they're coming at it from very different approaches. But, um, Anyway, but I first encountered John Bravicchia. I would guess Robert Breedlove did too on Jordan Peterson's podcast. And that was a really great conversation too. Um, but uh, yeah, in terms of Saifedean, is, he wrote the book, The Bitcoin Standard. He has an Austrian economics course on sailor.org, which is like 30 hours of his lectures that are you know totally free. Sailor.org has some pretty high level, like collegiate level uh, courses. And Saifedean's course on there is really good. Um, at least the parts I've listened to a lot of it, I, it was kind of basic. So I jumped to some of the more complicated stuff, but he's a really great communicator of Austrian economics. And he, like, there are a few things that I felt like Bob Murphy just kind of let the conversation flow. And I would guess based on how, you know, Safedine does with interviews with people, he'll stop a conversation and really go into a point and not, you know, and I think I'm just, I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's gonna be really good, uh, in November. So, um, yeah. yeah, I'm excited. And you know, these conversations are important. I know some people go, ah, like, you know, it's 2021. We got COVID vaccine mandates around the corner. You know, the military industrial complex is still big. War on drugs is still big. Biden seems to be expanding the, the government. People are, people are sometimes lately kind of like, ah, stop talking about theory. We got to take action. I'm like, talking about theory is sort of an action, I think. You know what I sure. mean? Like, because, um, you know, like the, the site one final Jordan Peterson uh, rule, you know, he says to tell the truth or at least not lie. And, yes. um, you know, the problem is yeah. people will continue to make the same mistakes as long as they continue to operate outside the truth. The reason why Jesus said the truth will set you free. And I, I just sure. feel like I'm not going to stop. I, I'm not saying, you know, only have conversations. And certainly my podcast is not like my only form of, you know, any type of political or philosophical activism, I, I try to do have my hand involved in a lot of things, uh, cryptocurrency being one of them. Because I think, I think you know the the I think the best way to end the state is to make it obsolete, if at all possible. You know what I mean? That that yeah. that'd be the ideal, like peaceful way to end the state without some kind of bloody revolution or like you know giant catastrophe. But um, but yeah, I feel like you know like what, people like what like what Jordan Peterson's doing. You know what I mean? Like, and, and affecting the culture, that is the ultimate strategy in terms of like having a low time preference for how to achieve our ends. And it's like, you know, there's only so much you can do in the long run when you're like reacting to the tyranny of your day and age. And like every generation's had their own thing they've had to deal with. Yes. Right. And Yes, Agreed. you do yeah. need to have a short-term strategy for dealing with that in a way that preserves as much liberty and human life as you can in that here and now. But you need to also engage in something that's affecting the culture for that long-term vision of seeing a world that evolves away from these uh, these ideas of of centralization, of violence, of corruption uh, that that are destructive to human society and destructive to 
you know, individuals' abilities to like act on just their own uh, uh, desires and and to live a life at peace with their fellow man. And it's like if you want to see yeah, that happen, to flourish. You, you, yeah, to flourish exactly. So if you want to see that happen, you 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 know, cult, culture is downstream of politics. I know some people will point out ways in which politics does affect culture, but um, yeah, like I'm not saying that they're you know like. Uh, to me, it makes sense because it's like, listen, you can put a dam downstream of something, and that affects what happens upstream. So it's not, it's not that sure. politics being downstream of culture means that there's not like a two way, like you know, one can't affect the other. They can both affect each other, but at the end of the day, like what is coming, uh, you know, from further up the stream is is I think more important because if if we continue to just allow the authoritarians that continue to allow those who engage in these high time preference, uh, high time preference behaviors and, and models that our society is built upon to go unchallenged. And we're not trying to find ways to combat that and to educate people and to inspire them, uh, to, to wake them up to, you know, the problems with these things. Uh, we're never going to move the needle in the right direction. And we, yeah. yeah, you know what I mean? Like well, we, we have one to... other thing to, to sort of add to that. Cause I, I mean, I agree with everything you said, but I think um, one part of it is, I mean, like, like you could spend a lot of time listening to a lot of politics stuff and trying to make political arguments and focusing on that whole world of, uh, you know, just difficult and ugly conversations. And to me, I consider it the pursuit of my self-interest and both for, uh, you know, what I find interesting you know, for mental health reasons, you know, it's just much, much more rewarding and fulfilling and enjoyable to listen to uh, you know, the the dialogos, you know, two people engaging in conversation in the pursuit of deeper truths and combining their unique perspectives in a way that produces something that is valuable to the listener and to the to the content consumer. And I think that, you know, I find so much more value and joy from listening to the stuff of the philosophical sphere. And I mean, sometimes like, you know, I, I am disappointed when conversations go too political. Like, you know, I, I, I wanted to hear more philosophy at times rather than, you know, getting caught up in this sort of short time uh, because, you know, so many of the political questions are shorter term questions, right? They're less right. relevant to the lower time preference. So I think, you know, it's anyway, it's just, it's more fun to. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. part of that is like, you know, <sighs> part of drawing people in is to create something of value that they want to consume. Right. Sure. So it's like, if, if, if what you're doing and compelling is... and beautiful arguments are captivating, at least, you know, in, in so many ways, it's just, yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's a huge part of it as well. Yeah. But part of it's also like, you know, like there's, if you, if you give really good arguments, but in like the context of like being hostile and, and, and not like, I, I don't know. Like, there's a difference between like engaging the world and that this is a very Christian thing too, where it's like the way that Christ and the apostles tell people to like engage in evangelism in the Christian sense, is not to go out and like browbeat people, but rather to go out and like let your life and your example and your words draw them, draw them to you to be like, what's different about this guy? What's different about these people? What's different about the way they live and they do things. And yes. that's what I think we as the libertarian movement as libertarians have to do is we have to be creating something that outcompetes the state and not be afraid to do that. Because I think that honestly, it wouldn't be that hard. <laughs> like if we stopped, sure. you know what I mean? Like if, if we actually 
work together and we 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 focus on 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 uh promoting what is is good and building something of value to attract more people to us i think that there's uh an under appreciated underestimated uh like thirst in people for something more than what the state is giving them like some people are very blackpilled and like oh the state's always going to exist because there's just people want a state and they'll always create a state and i'm like that's because like that's all they know and that's hard to change but if you can change it and like part of the thing that you do to change it is you know to like you, you can't wait for the state to, to disappear to create liberty you have to start like trying to create liberty and and like showcasing the the uh the ethics of liberty and the value of liberty in the here and now and part of that is like in these like it, it, through human action and that that, that can be through yeah yeah it, it is agorism but it's also just like i think it's just praxeology it's just like sure. go out like go out there and look at everything you do through through that like you know through that lens right of, of like like you know how can i go out there today and and do what i do and interact with the people i interact with and how can i i make this uh make the things that I'm doing and saying serve not just my short-term goals of like what I'm doing in the here and now, but continuing to have that long-term vision. And, uh, well, and I think, yeah. you're right. Like, like, like with that, the, the idea that, that reflecting on those actions on your past actions to evaluate the pursuit of your self-interest as a process, that feedback mechanism, both as an individual evaluating the success of your actions and as an entrepreneur evaluating the investment and the price signals, you know, and, and the revenues that are generated, it's a similar, you know, connection there um, between, you know, you need to have that process of figuring out what did I do right? What did I do wrong and improving, right? That's a constant dynamic, you know, process. And that's where, you know, so many of the Christian, I think concepts come in as well of, you know, seeking forgiveness and, and uh, you know, that, that constant pursuit of following Jesus, you know, it's, it's always following, right. You have to try to keep up and try to, you know, see where he's going. It's, it's not like an easy thing to figure out. There's a, it's a narrow path. All of that sort of stuff feeds very well into all these things that we were talking about. So. Um, yeah. 100% yeah. agree. Well, thanks again, Joe, for coming on. Thanks for those who uh, listened and watched, uh, you know, obviously, you know, yeah, like share and subscribe. It, uh, it's all helped. It's all helpful and it's all appreciated. Uh, but yeah, thanks everyone again and, uh, enjoy the rest of your night.